All right. Let's go ahead and uh, get started here. All right. Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome to the firehouse. Thanks for joining us here. We are. Oh, hey. Good morning. All right. One more time, Matt. I saw a few yawns out there. Go. No, just joking. All right. Um, we noticed something with our mic here. We've been discussing uh, when you have like a, a mic like this, if you go to look down, like look at your Bibles, all of a sudden it gets really loud and then it goes back away. And some of the other churches have those like uh, Garth Brooks styled microphones that we're, we're thinking about getting one of those, but I guess they're not cheap. And I don't know if I want to look like Garth Brooks or not there either. So, but I don't know. Jeff keeps trying to get us to buy that. I don't know. Uh, he likes Garth a little bit there, but no. Just joking, Jeff, just joking. Um, all right, we're going to go ahead and pray. Again, we are doing a series here. It's a series called Believe, where we're taking uh, a number of the miracles, actually seven of the miracles that Jesus performed that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And John said, hey, Jesus did a lot of miracles, but, but these I recorded to help you believe that Jesus really is the Christ and the Son of God. And so um, we're going to look at miracle number four here this morning on Jesus feeds the 5,000. So um, let's go ahead and just pray. Ask for God to meet us here during this time. Well, Lord Jesus, we do, uh, we do look to you here this morning and we, we ask that you would uh, open our hearts or give us teachable hearts, hearts that can hear from you. God, I, I just ask that you would take these, um, these thoughts, these points. In some ways, they might be similar to some crummy pieces of bread and some smelly fish. And God, I ask that you would bless them, that you would feed each one of us here um, with, with this message, with your word, with anything that you speak here today. God, I just pray you'd help us to be open to that, to receive it, um, and, and to make the most of it. But we just look to you for this grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, if you guys would, uh, you can open a house Bible, or uh, I'm going to read this here. You can read with me, but it's page 1055, if you have one of these uh, black house Bibles here. 1055, and it's John chapter 6. And so, let's see. We're going to read um, down to, well, the end of this passage here is verse 15, 1 through 15. We'll just read this together, and then we're going to look at uh, some things we might be able to pull out of this um, just to apply to our lives here. But so Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. 
Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So that's the... Jesus feeds the 5,000 here. We're just going to look at a few things here. Um, really, in this story, there's three people that are mentioned by names. As, as we look at this miracle, there's only three main characters, and we're going to just try to look at each one of them and see what we might learn from their example. There's Philip, there's Andrew, and there's Jesus here. So let's, um, let's take a look here. Um, the first one we're going to start with, actually we're going to start with a definition here. Where's my clicker? We're going to start with a definition that I, I think you can see a few of these things as we as we read this passage here. Um, click, click. Is that not working? Am I not pointing the right way? Okay. Aha. So, you might have a hint at what we're going to look at related to a couple of these guys here. Here's a definition for us. This is a extremely accurate one pulled off the internet. Um, it's uh, the free dictionary, I believe. I'm not sure. But, uh, so, pessimist. Pessimist. Um, from the Latin, pessimist, which means worse. Um, sometimes I think I want to learn Latin because I look at some of these and I go, well, that makes sense. Pessimist, pessimist, worse. Um, but I imagine it's harder than that. Some of you know, actually know Latin. But um, it says, one who tends to stress the negative or unfavorable or to take the gloomiest possible view. The pessimist. I don't know if you consider yourself a pessimist or not. Anybody? Raise your hands. We won't judge you too bad. Um, there's a few. Oh, we got a few in there. Okay, good. Honest. Way to be honest and humble. You pessimist, you. But no, just joking. Um, but uh, we're going to look first at Philip here. And Philip, uh, I think, gives us some things we might be able to learn here. Philip, I would call the, the skeptical pessimist. Um, you know, and I, and I think I think that's okay. Jesus met him where he's at. It says specifically that Jesus picked Philip out here to teach him a lesson. I wonder if he was kind of known for being a little, you know, kind of stick in the mud and prove it to me, a little bit skeptical. And Jesus said, Philip, today i got a lesson for you. Uh, and he asked him, you know, how are we going to feed all these people? They've come a long ways, they're hungry. How are we going to feed them? And Philip answers, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. You know, and I don't know, maybe that doesn't seem that negative or that skeptical, but, you know, I wonder why didn't Philip, why didn't he pick a bigger number? Why didn't he say, it would take one year's wages to feed this whole crowd? You know, I think in some ways he picked a really big number, but yet it's not big enough to feed the crowd. And there's a little bit of like, even if you had this much money, you still wouldn't get it done, Jesus. And... You know, I think there's a, a few things to look at. One is, his first response, though, was related to money. He's like, okay, let's crank this out. How in the world is money going to take care of this situation? We've got a problem. We need to feed people. His default was to look to money. 
to, to figure it out. And you know, I think one of the things we can ask ourselves is when you're in a crunch, when you're challenged, when you're lacking something, when you feel a need, what's your first response to look to? Do you look to money and go, hey, I, money can get me out of this? Do you look to relationships and go, my friends can get me out of this, someone close can get me out of this? Do you look to, uh, what do you look to when, when you're hard pressed? You fill up look to money and I think it would be good for us to watch, watch out for what we look for, examine what we look to first. Because ultimately, you know, we'll find it should be God that we look to first. But, um, you know, I think Philip, what he did in some ways was he overestimated the size of the need here. He goes, here's these people and this need is like so big. And he just had, he had this big view of the challenge. He had this big view of the need. And we have to watch for that error ourselves. Sometimes we can just look at the challenge, really focus in on it, maybe get an accurate grasp of how big and impossible the challenge might be. And that's what, that's what Philip did. And he overestimated that, especially in light of being with Jesus. And I think Jesus wanted to teach Philip a little about, hey, if you're running with me, you can view things differently than you would naturally. You know, and, and in some ways, we don't want to just... Uh, bag on pessimists here um, all of us fall in some camp of you know I find myself a little pessimistic sometimes optimistic sometimes realistic other times um, but but I think Jesus met Philip where he was at and Jesus met Thomas you know the, the, the disciple Thomas doubting Thomas he met him there but he had somewhere he wanted to take him and if you're pessimistic in general you might you might think to yourself that Jesus is glad to meet you there but he probably wants to teach you some things about himself to take you somewhere else here. And one of the points we got to draw out of this is just, um, you know, you can't be a faith-filled follower of Jesus and be a pessimist at the same time. Something's got to give. Either you're looking at a worst-case scenario all the time, or, or you're looking at it with Jesus with you, but you can't do both. Because if you really know who Jesus is and what he can do, you know, worst case scenarios is not what you're going to tend towards. And it's not what he wants you to tend towards. And so, you know, it'd be good to just think over yourself. How, how are you doing? Do you think you're doing both? You say you're following Christ, but yet you're tending towards being pessimistic? Because I think he wanted to teach Philip. You, they can't, they're not one and the same. When you're running with God in the flesh, when you have God on your side, you don't need to see it. I love how the, the Latin there was pessimism. It comes from the word meaning worst. You, all, you see the worst case scenario. And, and when, you're, you know, when you have faith in God, worst case scenario is not how you should first view everything. You know? Sure, there's some daunting odds out there, but um, the next thing we're going to look at is, um, is maybe some examples from, uh, from Andrew here. Realist. From the Latin word realis, meaning real. Very, very deep. You guys try to absorb that if you can. Um, but it's one who is inclined to literal truth and pragmatism. You know, it's someone who's like, all right, let's get down to, let's, let's get to the practicals here. Okay, I can count this up, I can do the math, and it's not going to work, right? Uh, that's, sometimes realists is like you just look at the situation for what it is and you kind of try to divide up what you've got and. And that's what it seems like Andrew, the practical realist, was doing. You know, um, Andrew, one of his disciples, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He said, "Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far would those go among so many?" You know, I don't know. I'm kind of trying to wonder how he would have actually shared it. You know, it's like 
talking to Jesus like here's a guy with five small barley loaves and two even smaller fish Jesus here's what we got and what's going to you know how's that going to help um but, but sometimes we might go, well, we all know pessimism. We don't want to be in that camp, right? Um, we're realists, you know? Let's just face reality here. I, you know, I've got a science degree. I can crunch the numbers, and that's, that's what we're really dealing with, right? But again, I think he had a, a lesson here for Andrew as well. Um, again, like, like we can often do, he was a realist. He just looked at the situation practically. And, you know, practically, if you start thinking through the numbers, I was trying to go like, okay... 5,000 men to feed and then it said that didn't count women and children there could have been up to 10,000 people there to feed and they had five small loaves of bread I don't know what that would be like you know I don't know if that's like five bagels and two little sardines or something like that so I don't know if they were that small fish but but can you just imagine like if you just practically looked at it and go okay everyone here you get one you know one one thousandth of a fish and you get one one thousandth of five loaves of bread which is you know you could do the math here I was looking at the math but you know it's not as fun as it could be um, but anyways the point was if you just looked at what you had that would be a real daunting situation you know you just take your five loaves slice them up and you really do you know get get a particle each you know enjoy your particle I hope oh there goes my coffee whoops sorry sorry Alan I spilled on your carpet man they're carpet squares we can replace them that's why we did that right Um, very good very good um but let's see here. So which, uh, I've got a question for you. Between being a realist and being a, a pessimist, which one do you think is better? Anyone? Anyone dare to answer? Dare to judge your neighbor? Realist. 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 Maybe a realist is better. Well, I think in general, I, I think you could probably say that. I'm not going to say that here. I don't want to make anyone feel too bad. Um, but in this situation, which would get the job done better? To meet the need of all the 5,000 people? Is it Philip and his approach? Or is it Andrew and his practical approach? Which one is the solution? Neither of these, neither of these, whether you're a pessimist and you go, there's no way eight months salary is not going to do it, or five fish is not going to do it. You know, uh, Andrew had a very limited view. He underestimated the, the few things that he had in, in, being, in light of Jesus being with him. In the hands of God, he underestimated what he had. Neither one of them got the job done. And I would suggest just in our way of life, sometimes we can go, well, at least I'm not a pessimist. You know, we, we judge them. You know, that's the righteous thing to do, right? But I'm a realist, you know, and, and that's a good place to be. Well, you know, I don't think Jesus was not all about it. You know, if you take everything in the Bible, some people try to do that. Hey, here's the Bible, and if you explain away anything that's supernatural, you kind of come up with this realist Bible and... You know, it's just kind of like what life would have been like if nothing supernatural ever happened. And that's, that's not the life we've been called to either. So we have to watch that. Neither one of those got the job done in this situation. Um, we'll look at... So again, you can't be a faith-filled follower of Jesus and a practical realist as well. You can't do both. You go, here's the practical situation, and I have faith in Jesus. He can do supernatural things as the Creator, as God in the flesh. Both of those, you know, one of them has to give. Either you believe something can happen beyond what's before you, or or you don't, and you go, I'm stuck with what I got. You know, and in in some ways, that can be the heart of Christianity. If you if you're a realist. The real deal is that we've all sinned against God. We've all earned His eternal punishment by breaking His eternal laws. And if you just go with what you got, you've got a problem on your hands that nothing 
you know, in this natural world is going to solve. And Jesus brought about a supernatural solution. It's really the heart of, of being a Christian, you know. But let's look at Jesus' example. His is obviously the, probably the most encouraging example we can learn from here. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd say Jesus was an optimist, but here's the definition again. Uh, from New Latin, optimum. Uh, the greatest good, one who usually expects a favorable outcome. You know, optimum. Some of these went from Latin, and then I think the French made words out of them, and then we took the French word. So, um, but optimum, you know, the one who sees the best possible outcome that could come from a scenario. And now when we're talking about being a, an optimist here, I'd say Jesus, you might call him the divine optimist, but sometime a, an optimist, you know, if we're going to judge them at all, which, you know, to be fair, we should. Um, but an optimist, sometimes an optimist can walk into a situation, they go, okay, 5,000 people to feed, five loaves, two fish. No problem. Happens all the time. You know, this is, it can kind of be this fantasy world. A happy-go-lucky, like, yeah, 5,000 people said we do this, we did this last week. No, that's not the case. This is actually a challenging situation that is not going to happen by the sheer happiness. You know, the, the power of positive thinking. You know, there's a book, The Power, the power of Positive Thinking. It's got some great principles, but it's not going to help in many situations like this. And so, Jesus wasn't just a happy-go-lucky optimist. He, um, I would say he knew who he was, and he knew who his father was, and therefore was kind of the eternal optimist. There's always a best-case scenario if you're running with God in the flesh and your Heavenly Father. You can always kind of expect He could bring about a best-case scenario. It's not just a random or a, a skewed optimism that He had here. But let's look at some of His um, some things we can learn from His example. Obviously, the best example of the, of the bunch here. And I'm going to say there was uh, three things we see in this verse that Jesus did to bring about this miracle. He, he took what they had. He thanked God in heaven for what he had, and then he distributed what, um, you know, the response to that. He distributed what, how God responded to that in this miraculous provision that fed everyone here. And so those are three, three examples, taking stock of what, what you have. You know, I think we, we can learn from these examples. You know, are we going to go out and take a piece of bread and start multiplying it? I, I haven't seen that happen before quite like that. I've seen some other ways that God has come through and in ways where seemed beyond what the current means were. But, but the first step here is just you've got to take stock of what God has given you. There was this enormous challenge before them, this huge need. And, and what did they do? They, well, here we go. We do have five loaves, five small loaves, and we do have two fish. And, and that was the starting place. Sometimes it's easy to think, you know, when I want to get something done, when I want to get out of a situation, throw everything aside, clear the table, let's start from scratch. But Jesus' example was, bring in those five loaves and let's get those two little smelly fish here and let's see what happens, you know. So I think it's a good thing for us to learn from. And then the second one is he he thanked, he gave thanks for it. Um, And then he distributed it. Now I've got a question for you. What point in this process, in these steps, at what point did this miracle occur? Was it he gave thanks? I mean, no, he, he took stock, and when he started counting it up, it actually didn't add up to five. It was like 5,000 pieces of bread. Was that where the miracle happened? Was it giving thanks? When he started giving thanks, there was, again, he's giving thanks. Thank you for this one, two, five, a hundred thousand pieces of bread. Was it right when he was giving thanks? Was it in the distribution process? Um, 
here you go, we got five loaves. Pass them out. You know, I'll see you in an hour when you're done passing out your five loaves. Where did the miracle occur? What's that? Well, I would say I would say the miracle occurred after he gave thanks, leading to the distribution of, of God's response there. And I, and I really believe if you look at it, I mean, you can't distribute something that you don't have, right? It's not like they started walking with nothing in their hands. Hey, there's bread there now. Cool. Uh, Jesus was, you know, in the different translations, if you look at the Gospels and they fill in different details that, than John has, but Jesus had his disciples have, have them pass out the bread. He gave thanks for it. Then he started, he, he broke it. It says in Matthew, um, the the parallel version there in um, Matthew 14. He broke it and he started giving it to his disciples. And so this miracle occurred somewhere after giving thanks and before the distribution. And I really think there's a lesson in there for us to learn. Um, you know, I've got maybe the question I put up here is is this. You know, um, in other translations, in the, in the Matthew account of this, same miracle, it uses different words. You know, it says Jesus took the loaves. And in, in the old, older uh, translation, like the, the NAS or even the King James, it says He took the loaves, He blessed them, He broke them, and then He distributed them. But there's kind of this, it hints at this idea of He gave thanks for what He had, or He, he blessed what He had, and then He passed it out. And to me, I've, I've been thinking about this and coming away just with the idea of what if, what if in giving thanks for, for what you have, there's a blessing that occurs that causes uh, multiplication to happen? What if that's really what's, what goes on? What if you look at your life and anything... What if you knew this? This is kind of hypothetical. But what if you knew that anything in your life that you gave thanks for, God would bless and increase and multiply that? What would you think about that? Would it affect how much you gave thanks for things? Now, how often do, uh, do pessimists give thanks for their daunting odds they're always faced with in life? Is that a common occurrence, would you say? I thank you that I'm once again outnumbered in this situation that's gloom and doom and the world's about to end. Probably not a lot of thanks that naturally comes there. What about realists? You know, realists go, okay, I've crunched the numbers. There's no way this is going to work. It's scientific. And I thank you for this challenge. Probably not there. Uh, Jesus gave us an example. Take stock of what you have. Thank God and heaven for it because it, it came to you. Anything we have, anything good you have has been given to you from God and heaven. And then he gave thanks for it. And then this miracle occurred. And I, I think there's more to it than meets the eye, this, this giving thanks. You know, I thought about even calling this message uh, the miracle of giving thanks. Because he gave thanks and then this miracle occurred. It's very interesting that, that John, as he records this gospel, later in the same chapter, he's, he looks back on what happened. And in verse 23, it says this. He says, um, But then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's how John recounts the, the, the whole miracle of feeding 5,000. John looks back on it and he says, Back there where, where Jesus gave thanks. I would have said something. Back there where Jesus multiplied the five loaves of bread into hundreds and hundreds of pieces of bread. 
But John viewed it as, hey, Jesus gave thanks. That, that was the miracle that occurred after he gave thanks. And I've just been really challenged by that, you know. And I was trying to think through some practicals as we look at our lives. Is there an area you feel in need? Is there an area you feel a challenge or lacking? And what if you look at that area closely? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's... Um, I don't know, maybe it's related to food. But what if you took what you had and just stopped for a moment in spite of the challenge and said, I thank you that at least in this challenge I have this. You know, worst case, I've got my life. I've got to be alive to be in a challenge, right? That's a starting place. Uh, another worst case scenario, at least I've got someone who died on the cross to pay for all my sins. It's given me a new life. That's not a bad thing to give thanks for. But, but what if you took your, your marriage? You go, marriage is hard, and I thank you, God, for this good part of my marriage. I thank you for this. And what if God blessed and multiplied that? What if in relationships with your roommates or at work, you look at those and you just kind of go, you know, God, I can at least be thankful for this and my roommates. And if you give thanks for that, what if God blessed that relationship and grew it and multiplied it? But if you look at your children and parenting, you know, sometimes it's easy to go, I'm training my kids, I'm trying to teach them to obey. I can be focused on training the disobedience out of them. And I can overlook, you know, what if I just gave thanks for the good things, the obedience that shows up there? What if God blessed that? Um, you know, I think, I think some things might change in a lot of our situations. Um, and it's, I think this would be a practical exercise. You know, sometimes I can feel this way as a pastor of a church. You know, I go, yeah, well, what about that church? They're growing so fast. They've got hundreds of people baptized every week and all this stuff. And, um, you know, but, but I think God just reminds me, well, why don't you just give thanks for, for what I've given you and see what happens. You know, one of the practical exercises I did this week is, as best I could recount your names, um, I just made a list and just went through thanking God for each one of you. Some of you are new as of the last couple of weeks. Some of you are visitors. As best I, I could get your name onto my list from our visitors list and stuff, I gave thanks for you this week. And, you know, it was good for me. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we're going to turn into a church of 5,000. I'm not sure about that. But, uh, but you know, I, it was a good exercise, a healthy thing to do. And I'm trusting God. God blessed me for giving thanks for you. But, you know, who knows what else he's going to do. But I encourage you this week, take some things and give thanks for what you got. You know, this, this situation, I think it's easier to give thanks. If you're like me, it's easier to give thanks when things are going well, right? You know, you get an income tax refund check and you go, God, I thank you, life is good. You know, and then when the refund runs out and, you know, you're back to life as normal. Okay, we're back to our normal thankfulness, which might not be much. Um, But Jesus is giving thanks here. If you look at his life, he gave thanks at some times where, really, I've got five loaves of bread, thanks, this is awesome. No, he, he did that as a way of life. He often gave thanks. Every time he broke bread, you'll see in the scriptures he gave thanks. You know, there's a small example there. Do you give thanks at all when you're taking a meal? Because Jesus did. That's not a bad example. Sometimes we can take that for granted or go, that's for the religious people. I would encourage you maybe to give thanks. Look at Jesus' example. He's getting ready the night that he's going to be betrayed and then crucified the next day. He gave thanks as he broke bread, which represented him, him being broken. He gave thanks. A profound time to give thanks. Not a natural time, but... I just think we, we could all experience a blessing if we grow in this. You know, um, and again, it's scriptural. You know, First Thessalonians five, sixteen through eighteen. Some of you might know that, but it says, "Be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you 
in Christ Jesus. God says, give thanks in all circumstances. Whatever circumstance, he doesn't say give thanks for the circumstances, this is terrible, someone's about to kill me and I'm just so thankful. No, um, you've got plenty of things to be thankful for. In any circumstance, you're still alive. Again, we start there and just build on the things you have to be thankful for and, and see what might happen. Obviously, in this case, uh, something miraculous happened here. So, something to think on, something to chew on here. Um, this next verse we're going to look at here, um, Jesus, the ultimate Savior here. It said, um, when they had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And so here's another great example. You know, Jesus is, he just multiplied this bread into, I don't know, hundreds of pieces it fed 5,000 maybe 10,000 so maybe multiply these things into thousands of pieces of bread what an abundance and he gathers up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces you know if you think about that at all if baskets of broken pieces came from pieces that were whole pieces so you at least double the quantity right there that you know that it came from but they started with five and it was this huge abundance and Jesus could have said, hey, look, I make bread like it's going out of style. Don't worry about it. You know, bread is easy. Let it go. The birds will love it. You know, but what did he say? He said, hey, go pick up these broken pieces of bread and gather them. Let nothing be wasted. You know, what lesson can we catch from that? You know, the obvious one is, um, is there anything in our lives where we're being wasteful? It'd be easy to go, it's just bread, it's going to go moldy, we could feed the animals with it. He said, go and gather it up. But what's going on in your life where Jesus might say, let nothing be wasted? You know what I'm talking about. Are you wasting money on selfish or foolish things? Are you wasting time? Are you wasting speech, maybe just foolish speech or you use... Um, that's a waste. Maybe what you listen to, and maybe there's some media influence that you have that God would look at that and go, you know what? As a matter of fact, that is a waste of my time that I've given you. I've given you time, a limited amount of time to affect all of eternity, and you're wasting it. What about other God-given resources? You know, I, I feel this just sometimes even with food. It's like you make a lot of food and you throw it out, and I'm just like, let nothing be wasted. That, that haunts me sometimes. Um, but are there any areas in your life? What about opportunities? Are there opportunities that God gives you to touch another person's life, heart, soul, that you're, you're wasting those? Maybe with co-workers every day. Maybe with people in classroom. Maybe people in the neighborhood. Uh, but, I, but that question is to you. It's to me. Is there anything in your life that you are wasting that your Creator might take issue with? And if so, let's... Let's change that. But another question I have for you is, um, you know, if, this, if Jesus is like getting down to like, okay, don't waste bread, how much more do you think He cares about souls of men and women? Eternal souls of men and women. He's saying, don't waste this bread. You know, the literal word that is used here for waste is the same one that's translated lost or perished in other places. Do you think if he's concerned about not wasting these little pieces of bread, how much more do you think Jesus is concerned that no soul is perished, no, no soul is lost, no soul is wasted? I just think that's something to... When I saw that phrase, nothing wasted, other translations, nothing lost, nothing perished. And, you know, if you haven't figured it out by now, this lesson, 
It's not about the bread. It's about bigger things here. Jesus is using bread to point to bigger deals here. And let's look at this verse. Um, a couple of verses that lead us there. Um, if you have your Bible, you can just look further in this passage here. Chapter 6 and verse 26 and 27. Here's some things that Jesus again refers back to this miraculous sign. And he tries to draw out some of the meaning of it here. And we'll just look at this last couple of verses to close here. And it says this, um, verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're not looking for me. Um, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. You know, and, and Jesus in, in one way is saying, Hey, look, you guys are following me around because you were a part of that miracle. You got this bread and now you're tagging along. But, he, you know, he's kind of telling hey, it's not about that bread. There's, there's another bread that you need to connect with here. And in another way, you know, he's also saying, Hey, by the way, that was a miracle. This bread just multiplied. It's one of those when I get to heaven, I go, I want to see it. How did that happen? I want to hit pause and go like, was it a sleight of hand? What's it? Did it multiply as he broke it and he just kept breaking it? And it was like the, the same scene played over and over again. It's just like, and, and different guys coming up to him. I don't know what that looked like, but I think it's going to be awesome to see how that miracle played out. Um, but, but that miracle happened not to say, hey, disciples, here's what you can do. There's no account anywhere else in the New Testament where Peter took bread and, and fed 5,000 or things like that. It was uh, a miracle that happened, but it had some meaning beyond the miracle there. And he's starting to explain that to him here. I love, he goes on to say here, you can read in the, I've got it from the Message Bible, but verse 35, it just says, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The person who aligns with me hungers no more and thirsts no more ever. He was using this, this picture, this miraculous happening with the bread to, to show what he was capable of and, and who he was and how we were to relate to him. Um, some of the things we can come away with is that God is, um, God is built into every soul. There's a innate, a built-in, a hardwired hunger for God in every person. And God put it there as part of His creation. Um, but the obvious problem is that people feed that with other things. You know, God has designed that, that Jesus is the bread of life. The hunger that you have in you is designed to be satisfied, satiated through Jesus Christ. And we try to fill that hunger with other things. We try to fill it with, with money, with pleasure, with entertainment, with relationships. And, and really Jesus is saying, hey look, I'm the creator, the bread of life, the big B bread. And you're looking for your fulfillment in the little bee bread. Things in this creation. And he's, gonna, he's saying it's going to leave you wanting. He gave the bread and the miracle said everyone was satisfied. And the point was Jesus can satisfy anyone who receives him. Um, the other thing that Jesus did, and we've talked about this as well, but Jesus doesn't just meet the need out of, out of the crumbs and say, here you go, there's a little piece, you'll be fine. Jesus has a life of abundance. Everyone ate till they were full and there was stuff left over. And when you look and you feed on Jesus Christ or feed your soul on Him in life, 
um, there's, there's abundance in your life. It's an overflowing life. It's not just a, a getting by and going from one fix uh, that you fed your soul on in this creation to the next fix. Uh, one form of entertainment, one relational connection here and there, and you're just going around starving, trying to feed your soul on something in the creation when it's only designed to be fully filled through the Creator, through the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Um, you know, the other thing we can pull out of this is uh, Jesus, He did this miracle, but He had His disciples distribute this bread that satisfied. You know, and in some ways, um, that's just symbolic of what Jesus, the way He's designed it in this mission in life. You know, He said, Hey, look, I'm the bread of life. And by the way, anyone who's partaken of that, who's a believer and a follower of Him, hey, you go distribute the good news about the bread of life that satisfies every hunger. You go take it out there. And He passed that on to His disciples just like the Great Commission has been passed on to us. We have the bread of life. We have the the Creator, the God in the flesh, the prophesied Messiah. And we are the ones that are supposed to take that good news of the bread of life to everyone. And the last one here, you know, again, He wants none to perish, none none to be lost, none to be wasted. And so, you know, most everyone here, you you really got to fall into one or two camps here. One is that maybe you've yet to come to Jesus as the bread of life, the source of life for you, the sustenance of life. Maybe you're looking for other things uh, to find that, that fulfillment and it's leaving you hungry and empty. And it's time to look to Jesus as the bread of life, eternal life, abundant life. But if you've done that, and many of you in this room have, guess what? You're to be in the camp who has been given the bread of life, the good news to take to every person out there who hungers for God and they don't even realize it. That assignment has been given to every one of His disciples. And, and are you on that mission? You know, because again, we are, all of us are one of two things. We're on the mission to take the good news to the world or you are a part of the mission field. Well, believer or not, you're part of the mission field. It says, uh, if you're a believer, maybe you need a kick in the pants to realize, hey, hey, God has a plan for you. He's got an assignment He's given to you that you will one day account for. Or else, if, if you're not a believer, you need to come to Christ for life, for true life here. And so, but anyways, um, you know, obviously as a church, we, we are on mission. We want to take this good news of the bread of life to everyone in the world starting right here in the Highland neighborhood and our hope is that each one of you would be on that same mission if you haven't come to Christ I would encourage you to, to think through maybe the need that you have that you've been satisfying with other things call it what it is you might already know that and if you have I encourage you to to take on your God-given mission of taking the good news about Jesus to the whole world let's pray Well, Lord Jesus, I just thank you for um, that you had this miracle recorded, uh, that you had John recorded and others recorded. And God, not only was it an amazing supernatural miracle that occurred in time and space um, on this planet, but it was a miracle with meaning, Lord. You are the bread of life. You satisfy every person and even to overflowing. And you've given us, your disciples, the mission of of taking that good news to the whole world. God, we just ask for your help in this. God, help us to identify places in our lives where we are wasting what you've given us. We're wasting time. 
we're wasting our lives. Lord, help us to, to let nothing be wasted. God, I pray that you'd help each one of us to take stock this week of what you've given us and to thank you for it and to trust and respond to, to whatever you do, God, in response to that. But we just, we just thank you that you are the bread of life. You're the only one who satisfies. We acknowledge that here this morning. But just help us, Lord. Help us to feed on you and nothing else for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming this morning. Again, we've got a busy week here. So uh, an infusion teaching Tuesday, you're all welcome to join. Um, Wednesday night, fun nights on your small group. Friday night, coffee house. And then we'll continue with miracle number five next Sunday here. So have a great day.